ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. They're trying to lower expectations, I think, of, of grand statements. It's really not clear whether there'll be, for example, a joint statement from the two leaders afterwards. It seems unlikely given how many things they still disagree on. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hi there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, host of RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Wiradjuri country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And PK, the PM is only just back from that bells and whistles trip to Washington and now he's off again, this time to China. They're calling him Airbus Albo. Karen Middleton, chief political correspondent for the Saturday paper, has just returned from a trip to Beijing herself and she'll join us shortly to share her observations on how this meeting with the Chinese President Xi Jinping might play out. But first, PK, the Israel-Gaza conflict continues to escalate every day as Israel launched their ground invasion of Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu labelled the second phase of the war and warning the mission to find and destroy the terrorist group Hamas leadership will be long and difficult. Um, But there is some good news today amongst all the tragedy as we record this on a Thursday morning. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has confirmed that 20 Australians and three of their family members have made it out through the Rafa border crossing overnight. And over 300 people, mostly dual citizens, have been able to cross the border so far. So there's a list there. And if you're on the list, you get out. It's the first time the crossing's been open for people to leave Gaza since the siege began more than three weeks ago. But PK, amongst the broader global community, it has to be said there are real fears that this conflict in Gaza could spill over into the neighbouring region and become a wider regional conflict. And it's notable that our Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, has been strengthening her language, I think, in the past week as the number of civilian Palestinian deaths continue to mount. Here she is on ABC Melbourne. I would say to Israel, there are even in war, there are rules. Uh, Our parliament and our government continues to say that Israel must observe international law and the rules of war. There are ongoing civilian deaths. You've seen the international response. I think the the reality is the international community won't accept ongoing civilian deaths. So when friends like Australia urge Israel to exercise restraint and protect civilian lives, it is really critical that Israel listens. In diplomatic terms, PK, that line there about the international community not accepting continuing civilian deaths is considered pretty direct, I think, and it's pretty certain that Israel won't like hearing it. So I think it's notable, as the Albanese government maintains its position of supporting Israel's right to defend itself and condemning the Hamas attacks on the 7th of October, it's also working more obviously to manage social cohesion here at home and in the region. Yeah, what we're seeing from Labor, I think, Fran, is really a, a, quite a subtle yet significant shift. And I call it subtle because the government continues to support Israel's right to defend itself, and that means military action. 
but it is walking a tightrope where it is increasing its language of support for Palestinians and for Palestinian victims of this war. Now, this is really frustrating the Jewish community. It is a strong view, not universal, to be clear, but strong view that October 7th is being forgotten or minimised as we are having this discussion. There are even progressive Jewish people who are very concerned that the world moved on too fast Mm. and did not pause to realise that what had happened to Israelis on October the 7th was heinous, horrendous, and that there was condemnations and protests before that information had even sunk in. Labor is aware of that concern, but at the same time, many Labor MPs do represent uh, electorates with large numbers of Arab and Muslim Australians that are very concerned that they're being ignored. So what have we seen here? A subtle shift, but a significant one. The language is changing as the days go on and as the death toll mounts, particularly the death toll of children too. Let's not forget about that. Yeah, Government I think is that's concerned. an important point you make there, PK, that it's changing as the weeks go on. So, of course, there was a condemnation of Hamas as there must have been in support for Israel after those brutal attacks. But as the war goes on, we're seeing a shift because the civilian deaths are mounting, right? A shift, but not a shift yet that's strong enough to mean, you know, that the vote, for instance, in the, the United Nations was mm. different. So it's it's very subtle. That's why I say subtle but significant. So on Monday, Penny Wong, as you say, called on, for instance, Australians in Lebanon to leave while they still could. She warned that the war could spill over the government, not just our government. Lots of governments are concerned that this will lead mm. to a larger regional war. But Minister Wong's remarks, of course, did come after some very significant remarks, in my view, from the the Cabinet Minister, Tony Burke. He's the Industrial Relations Minister, but he represents um, a large number of Arab Australians who are very concerned that the government is ignoring them. And they, some of them are really angry that the government has not been listening to their pain. And he sent a very, very strong message, which was, I think, a different message to the one you, you're hearing from the government. It was subtly different, but it was different in my view. Uh, he condemned the actions of Hamas still, supported the right of Israel to defend itself, so didn't stray from the official line. And that that's why, you know, he continues to be a cabinet minister. If he had, it would have been more significant. He didn't do that. But he said we have to distinguish the debate in Australia between Hamas and Palestinians. He supported the Canterbury Bankstown Council, for instance, in Western Sydney uh, for raising the Palestinian flag, stating it was not representing Hamas, but actually the grief in the community. Here he is. It's simply the case that people have a right to be able to grieve when innocent life is lost. And the, the concept of competitive grief is something that I don't want to see in Australia. I, I believe we do have the maturity and we need to have the maturity to Does have it, the respect for each other's grief. Now, Fran, I don't know anyone who disagree with that concept of people have the right to grieve, but in terms of the government's emphasis, that's where kind of it gets more complicated. The Foreign Minister Penny Wong also said just this week that she's deeply concerned at reports of ongoing settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, She said this violence inflames tensions and that those responsible must be held accountable. Now, it's not a mistake or accidental that she tweeted that out. 
she wants to send a message, Fran. This is part of the subtle shift, isn't it? Well, that's true. And um, all things are true. This is a complex, wicked problem. There is violence perpetrated against the Israelis, shocking violence, as you say, heinous on October the 7th. And now there is shocking violence being rained down upon Palestinians in Gaza, not just Hamas, as Israel tries to root out the Hamas leadership and destroy Hamas. I was very struck when I heard that Tony Burke interview on your show on Friday because it put me, I suppose, for a moment in amongst the community of the Palestinian community, the Arab community in Western Sydney and other parts of the country and the collective grief they must be feeling. And it made perfect sense to me that a member of parliament representing that community would be expressing those views. But it didn't you know, and I, and I think this is a shame, really. It didn't take long for those comments to be politicised in a domestic political framework here at home too. Opposition leader Peter Dutton using those remarks from Tony Burke as an opportunity to label Labor as divided on this. Here he is on Sky News following Tony Burke's comments. I think it gives a real insight into uh, the thinking within the Labor Party and the division that exists. Uh, I think the Prime Minister should have picked the phone up immediately to Tony Burke and uh, really given him a dressing down because uh, to to not condemn Hamas and uh, to use you know the, this sort of soft form of words uh, sends a terrible message and the government should be speaking with one voice of condemnation against Hamas at the moment and instead uh, you've got uh, people running off uh, doing their own thing. Now it is true people are running off and doing their own thing and Tony Burke was very much doing his own thing there representing his electorate and I'm pretty sure they weren't comment sanctioned by the foreign minister for instance but he did condemn Hamas. It's not true to say he didn't condemn Hamas. What he was trying to do was delineate in people's minds and this is you know in the in the mode of we need all our politicians and all of us to be working to maintain social cohesion, to differentiate between Palestinians and Hamas and the Palestinian community who are watching this war unfold and seeing their loved ones killed. I mean, I was on local radio last night and one listener wrote in to say that uh, at the school where they teach, a Palestinian child was away for the day because 17 members of their family had been killed in bombings. You know, so it's having a real impact here. So, you know, is the opposition talking up a, a sort of a split within Labor over this? I think it's overstating it. Yes, there are different perspectives reflecting perhaps the different parts of Australia they represent. But is that a split or, or as I say, is, is that just a way to manage social cohesion? Well, I'd use the word schism. I do think there is a difference between some positions in the cabinet and in the broader Labor Party and parliamentary party. I do think there is. But I call it a schism rather than a split because a split, as I say, even if you listen to Tony Burke's words, he didn't call for a ceasefire. He didn't say it was a collective punishment. He was pretty consistent with official government policy. Um, so it's about emphasis. Yeah, yeah. And, but I think you're right. I think we have seen that pivot from our Foreign Minister Penny Wong, but it's, uh, it's careful. It's careful. And just, just um, before we go to Karen, just drawing on this idea of competitive grief, PK, I thought that was a, a very powerful phrase that Tony Burke used there. And this week, we've got an example of it, if you like, if we want to bring it back to the human. We actually both spoke to young people who were grappling with grief about their grandparents. One was Israeli, one was Palestinian. On Monday, you spoke with Ofer Metzger, an Israeli citizen whose grandparents were taken hostage by Hamas. It was so scary because we knew who they are. We knew it's Hamas. For a couple of times, I, I actually thought that 
that's the end for her. And since we we lost the connection with our grandparents, uh, we knew nothing. Imagine that, your grandparents being taken hostage. This week uh, on Radio Sydney Drive, I spoke with a young Australian-Palestinian woman, Ranim Amud, who told me about the fear she held for her grandparents, especially in that communications, telecommunications blackout that occurred last weekend. My family in the north of Gaza cannot evacuate. There is no space for them to leave. My 76-year-old grandmother can barely walk independently. How is she expected to move to the bottom half of Gaza? So we're terrified for them. They are terrified for themselves. My dad's family home in the south of Gaza experienced shelling recently nearby right before the internet blackout. So like you can imagine 18 to 24 hours, we didn't know if we had to prepare for a funeral. We didn't know injuries. That was a very terrifying period for everyone. So there you go, PK, two young women, one Israeli, one Palestinian, both fearful, anxious, grieving for their for their grandparents. That's real life, isn't it, Fran? That is actually how, how it really is. And um, I think it's important that we you know, just sometimes pause and think about the fact that this is real people. And I think it's important to think about the human toll throughout all of this. Fran, should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. Karen Middleton is the Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper and our guest in the party room. Karen, welcome. Thank you very much, PK and Fran. Hi, Karen. Lovely to have you back. Karen, we've just been talking about the ongoing horrors of the Israel-Gaza war as tensions threaten to spill out into the region. Here at home, six former prime ministers have issued a joint letter condemning the brutal attacks by Hamas and standing in solidarity with Jewish-Australian community, stating there was no place in Australia for racial vilification and declaring, quote, there is no more tenaciously evil race hatred than anti Semitism. They did also say, though, we stand in solidarity with Jewish Australians at this time. Likewise, we stand too with Australian Palestinian community whose families are dying and suffering in this terrible conflict. They too deserve our love and support. Karen, what was the point? What was the agenda? Of this statement? I think, well, this is targeting a domestic audience and I think the purpose of having um, a whole lot of prime ministers all together uh, was to try and bridge the political divide a bit and, and send a message of unity, um, particularly to the domestic audience. Now, it's interesting, This the genesis of this statement was from the Jewish community. We know that Josh Frydenberg, the former treasurer, was instrumental in getting the prime ministers, the former prime ministers to agree. But that, as we understand it from what Tony Abbott said last week, they opted to to redraft the statement to make sure it was in their own words. And what we Mm. don't know is what the original looked like versus what we've got publicly. But certainly this is a statement that while standing firmly with Israel um, in the face of a terrible terrorist attack from Hamas is also making the point about the Palestinian community. And I think that goes to the need to emphasise the role of innocent, innocent civilians on both sides of this conflict. Um, so it's, I think it's a, you know, it's an interesting statement from that point of view. It's, uh, you know, Paul Keating chose not to sign it. Mm. He has explained that a little bit more in the last couple of days and suggested that he didn't want to be a part of groupthink <laughs> and that he has n- always resisted signing such letters with other prime ministers. So he's a contrarian but, <laughs> and has, yeah. has stepped aside from that. But we do have you know, Liberal and Labor Prime Ministers' signatures on this. And I guess it sends that that message that the Australian community needs to come together in the face of this terrible conflict. Look, the opposition again 
tried to draw Anthony Albanese into that decision by Paul Keating. And as you say, I mean, Paul Keating isn't a big fan, I think it's fair to say, of joint statements. He's sort of a lone wolf kind of dude. Um, but trying to bring him in, though, that, that that says that there's division within this. So oh, if the former Labor Prime Minister didn't sign it, this shows something bigger inside of the Labor movement. Anthony Albanese, though, wouldn't go there when asked. Here is. I think that's a question for Paul Keating, I would have thought. I, I support the positions that, that I've taken. It is important that we recognise uh, that the uh, attacks uh, from Hamas on Israel are worthy of absolute condemnation in an unequivocal way. Uh, it's also important uh, to recognise that Israel has a right to defend itself, but how it does that matters. Karen, again, we hear that language from the PM. How Israel decides to defend itself matters. This is the formulation they've come up with, walking this narrow line between supporting Israel but also trying to hold it to account or showing that there's some sort of guardrails around it. That's we right. now know the PM has spoken with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu directly. Is this shift due to a concern that tensions could expand across borders or is it about managing the domestic politics? I think it's both. I mean, there are a range of things that arise from this. And we should also make it clear, um, PK, that the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network criticised that prime ministerial statement and said they felt that the former PMs were being used and that it didn't adequately condemn Israel's behaviour either before the Hamas terrorist attack or since. So they've put that position there. But what that shows you too is that this is wickedly difficult, this whole issue. It, it has been for a long time, but especially in this situation, to, to find that nuanced position, to condemn a horrific terrorist attack and stand with Israel, but not to be seen to be allowing Israel to do whatever in response. And so I think the government's trying to walk that line, send, send a message to Israel that it, it is not carte blanche support for anything it wants to do in response to this attack. But it's also got an eye to the domestic situation because we've seen unrest here in this country since that attack on the 7th of October. We we are at risk of divisions worsening here as well as on the world stage and the government has to try and bring people together and not further fuel those. So I think also the focus on civilians and that you talked about the language changing a bit. I think there's a new, firmer focus from the government on the plight of civilians in this conflict. And in some ways, I mean, that, that is part of this whole thing of trying to unify and, and find a point of that everyone can agree on. But I think also the politics of this within the Labor Party are quite complicated and difficult. And there are strong advocates, long-standing advocates for Israel within the particularly the right of the Labor Party. There are also long-standing advocates for the Palestinian interests particularly on the left. We've seen recently Ed Husick and Anne Ali, two Muslim members, senior members of the government, um, speaking out in defence of particularly Palestinian civilians. So the, the Prime Minister also has a job here to keep his own party together and that is not lost on the coalition, which is taking every opportunity to exploit divisions and, and make that job harder in a domestic political sense. So it's a, it's a dangerous game, but they are certainly putting pressure on the government in a political sense as well. And Karen, um, Benjamin Netanyahu might be getting all these messages 
messages from Australia's foreign minister and, and others that how, how Israel defends itself matters, but he's not taking a step back. He made a, a televised address that was very strong and talked about Hamas, you know, using Palestinians as human shields. And if Israel was to declare a ceasefire, that would be equ- equivalent to Israel surrendering, basically. This call from the Prime Minister with Benjamin Netanyahu, do we know any details of it? I don't have details of it, I'm sorry, but I'm sure he was trying to express that nuance Mm. in that conversation and to to say Australia is a firm supporter of Israel, but we, the country, the government in that case, won't stand by and uh, allow Israel to wantonly attack civilians. Now, Israel, as you say, makes the point that Hamas hides itself among civilians deliberately, and that is always the, the wicked challenge when there's a conflict like this if you're dealing with a group that is not a necessarily a, a sovereign entity and is is hiding itself among civilians. So there's a question of where the balance lies for Israel, but it does seem very determined to eliminate Hamas. And the question we all ask, I suppose, is what, it, what will the cost of that be for civilians? I want to change the conversation to more international um, discussion with the domestic flavour. You are just back from China and the Prime Minister is about to head there too. On Saturday, he flies out for a meeting with the Chinese President Xi Jinping, the first Australian Prime Minister in seven years to do so, a really significant time after we've been in the deepest of freezes. You know, this is very much central in your mind. What what does the Prime Minister see, do you think, as a benchmark for success in terms of the optics of this, but also tangible inroads? That's the big question, isn't it? What, how do we judge the success of the trip? You know, some people you talk to will say, well, just the fact that it's occurring is, a, is already an indicator of success because we haven't had such a visit, as you say, for seven years. They're trying to lower expectations, I think, of, of grand statements. It's really not clear whether there'll be, for example, a joint statement from the two leaders afterwards. It seems unlikely given how many things they still disagree on. There has been one of those in the past, but it seems like we probably won't see that again. But that's not necessarily a a sign of failure. And we may not see immediate statements about changes or concessions on either side. I'm sure there'll be something, but, you know, the point is made from government officials that these things take time, we need patience, and that this is a relationship that needs to warm up slowly. So I think they're really trying to make sure that we don't have dramatic expectations out out of this visit. And I think there's a hope that the the fact that it's occurring will also send a message in China that Australia is not in the deep freeze anymore and that may have its own impact in terms of engagement with Australia, you know, tourism and and trade. So they're balancing all of those hopes and desires against a determination on the Australian side not to make concessions on security or cyber activities or human rights and to make the point that those settings from Australia and those values remain unchanged. Yeah, so it's the optics and the message. This visit comes off the back of the Prime Minister's US state visit, of course, which was a a real show of strength of US-Australia relations. We know China was discussed there with Anthony Albanese and the President of the US and the US National Security Advisor and others. What do you reckon was talked about in that room, Karen? And is there a sense that Australia's breaking the ice for the US here ahead of Joe Biden's meeting with Xi Jinping later this month, which, you know, is a significant moment in that tense relationship? I'm not suggesting Australia's America's poodle in the region, but, you know, more a tapped-in emiss- <laughs> emissary. How are we regarded or, or useful here? 
Well, we've certainly had that suggestion made in the past, we haven't have. we? It's been a controversial one. Actually, interestingly, when I was in Beijing and I went on a journalism exchange that was sort of co-sponsored by an Australian journalist organisation, the Asia-Pacific Journalism Centre, and the Chinese peak body for journalists, the All China Journalists Association. And the Chinese side were, were very keen for us to go and we had a range of meetings and one of those was, was with a, a group of academics from the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies and they came armed with a whole lot of things uh, that they wanted to ask and points they wanted to make. One of the things they said quite explicitly was, oh, you know, Australia, you, you should be independent of the United States, shock horror, but also you could act as a go-between for the United States and Europe with mm. China. Now, as I say, that's a controversial suggestion and I don't think it's one Australia wants to embrace. And I'm not sure that it's one the US wants us to embrace either. Are we really going to go back to the United States as some kind of neutral party in between and say, oh, look, the Chinese say this, you know, they want you to do this. I don't think they need us to do that. But having said that, I think there, there are obviously discussions about how Australia's relationship with China can not only further Australia's interests, but can further the joint interests of its allies in the region. So I'm sure there will be views being conveyed that are shared, both shared by the United States and shared with the United States. Mm. The trip obviously comes at a time where Australia really needs to reset on a number of fronts. After the referendum, I think, you know, there is this real focus from the Australian government on other issues and and trying to show that it's trying to get things back on the road. You know, at the same time, actually managing a trip like this has lots of booby traps attached to it, right? Like there are difficult issues in the lead up to this trip, for instance. We've got this call for the current Australian who is being detained, writer Yang Hung Jung, to be released. The Prime Minister clearly uh, will have to raise this. This is going to be difficult. The shadow Foreign Minister Simon Birmingham says a stabilisation of relations between Australia and China won't be possible without his release. Here he is. The case of Dr Yang Hanjun should be one of the top priorities raised by the Prime Minister on his trip to China. Uh, This is a situation of an Australian citizen who is effectively being arbitrarily and indefinitely detained. Okay, so that's the sort of opposition putting a lot of pressure, I think, on the government. They're welcoming the trip broadly, but there is pressure being mounted on the government to try and achieve some of these things. Young Hung Jung's family wants him released. They've they put together a rare public statement on this, Karen. But you know these are things are very difficult, and they and they take a long time actually to to work on, don't they? Yes, and I think the message we're getting is that the case of Young Hung Jung is different to the case of Chung Lei. There was clearly a not accidentally timed decision or move made to release Chung Lei before the Prime Minister arrived. And it was also just four days before we journalists arrived there. So, you know, that that was curious and welcome. Uh, but the sense you get is that the case of Yang Heng Jun and there are other Australians in detention in China and, and in Hong Kong is more complicated. So I don't know that we should expect a dramatic move, but that doesn't come from anyone in government. That's just me looking at the circumstances. People have been very hesitant to discuss it. You know, when when I was in China with, with my colleagues, the, the opportunity we got to raise that as a question was with those academics I mentioned. We'd, I did it right at the end of that conversation and they had r- brought up Chung Lei. They had contact with her. They knew her. They talked about the fact that she'd been 
sent home again. But when I asked what about young Hang Joon and his fate, it was sort of a pause and there was not an answer. And then it was sort of, well, that's one for the foreign ministry. So I got the sense it was a more uncomfortable subject. When I heard those comments from Simon Birmingham, I thought, oh, you know, this is just more domestic political mischief trying to raise the bar again for this trip to not hit the benchmark. But then, you know, I thought we, we saw that f- release from Young Heng Jun's family, this public statement this week, speaking about his deteriorating health, urging the Prime Minister to secure his release before it's too late. But maybe the Shadow Minister is sort of publicly ramping up the pressure so China can take note of what a serious issue this is in Australia. So the Prime Minister goes there with all that ballast behind him. Yeah, I I do get the same sense. And it's not just the coalition, obviously the family. You know, these issues are also a very fine balance. Whenever we have a sensitive consular case like this, often governments of both stripes will say, look, these are best dealt with behind the scenes and quietly, you know, just dial down the public pressure. It doesn't help. Um, and, And often that is the case. But we have seen a deliberate decision by the family to make this statement on the eve of Anthony Albanese's visit and to emphasise the state of health of young Heng Jun, the desperation and the need for urgent action. And I do get the same sense as you, Fran, that that this is not necessarily, and again, this doesn't come from the government, but this may not be an unwelcome intervention from the government's point of view, that it does underscore that the Australian community has not forgotten him or others in detention and that the Australian community is demanding that China demonstrate its goodwill in relation to the the warming relationship and, and act um, to improve his circumstances, if not release him and send him home. How many times are we going to hear the term agree where we can, disagree where we must? Mm. That's right. Cooperate where we can, disagree where we must. That's, That's the standard phrase. That's right. And that the uh, first bit will always have the second bit attached. They are the linking sentences of the <laughs> China relationship. Karen, picking your brain has been one of my favourite parts of the week. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Karen. It's great to have you fresh from China. Thank you. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And it's time for our question time. This week's question comes from Dylan. Hi, PK and Fran. My question is in regards to the political pain of interest rate rises. I've always wondered why the RBA's only tool to address inflation is taking money from mortgage holders and giving it to the big banks. Is it not a more equitable or less politically painful way to address inflation? Well, that's a good question, Dylan, and uh, I'm not an economist, so I can't give you the full box and dice, but the fact is it is a blunt instrument and the RBA and the government acknowledge it's a blunt instrument. And I don't know what the more equitable way would be. I mean, certainly mortgage holders, you hear it all the time, are saying, how come it's only us who are using, you know, being used in the fight against inflation? Um, But, you know, trying to think of how else we do it, raise taxes on everybody, take more money out of the pockets of everybody. Everybody, you know, raising taxes is difficult politically for government and it's not the job of the RBA. So, I don't know. PK? Yeah, well, that's the point, right? There's there's monetary policy, there's fiscal policy. You don't just manage interest rates through the RBA. The RBA's only tool is this blunt way. That's their tool, right? But then there are governments and the state governments too, right? And their spending also contributes to inflation. But in terms of the point you make, I mean, if you look at some of the analysis coming out at the moment, you know, people who have mortgages are at breaking point, many. And that's really significant. And I'm glad you've asked the question because 
following higher inflation figures and retail sales data from September, there's been a you know kind of friendly suggestion from the IMF that we should raise rates again and maybe again after that. That will be tough for people with mortgages and it seems that Melbourne Cup Day might be the next interest rate rise, which will, of course, be a bit of a headache for the government to manage politically. But your question is a really important one. Lots of debate around it. Yeah, lots fact. of people asking it, aren't they? Yeah, there are. And, and the union movement's been making points about this as well, saying that it's, it's too blunt a tool that, you know, we've got to stop um, going down this road. But under the current architecture we have, and even with the shake-up of the RBA that the government embarked on, it still hasn't actually changed the fundamentals, which are that this is the, the, the kind of way that the RBA tries to take the heat out of inflation and that they are willing to do it, even under the new governor. And I suspect they will. There is a massive question around whether it's fair way to manage the economy. And I think many people would say it's not fair. Well, it's a lever they've got, right? And you mentioned that IMF report and the IMF report specifically said that as the RBA is doing this with the lever it's got and the federal government is saying it's trying to bank the profits that are coming in and, and build up a surplus as, as one of the bulwarks against it, the state governments are spending like crazy on infrastructure at the moment and it's that massive infrastructure spend going on in the states that is really putting pressure on inflation and contributing to inflation. So, you know, we've got to get all in sync here if we're going to slay the inflation dragon, as they say. Slay the inflation dragon. Like that? Yeah, I do. I love, I love, I love a bit of dragon talk. <laughs> Keep sending your questions in because um, they're they're excellent to receive and to ponder. We're especially fond, of course, of the voice notes, which you can email to the party room at abc.net.au. And you can follow us on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's it from us this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.